I attended an industry conference and a number of technology companies in the email space were sponsors of that. My email address was shared with those sponsors. One of them said, thanks for joining us at this event. However, their um, unsubscribe page was in violation of canned spam and was asking me for data points that I legally should not be required to share to get off their list. But nobody else acknowledged where they got my email address, why they were sending me email campaigns. What was their value proposition? What was I going to get out of these campaigns? If really sketchy. Today in Inboxing, Jen Capstraw, speaker, evangelist, email geek, and co-founder of Women of Email. And welcome back to another episode of Inboxing. Inboxing is very thrilled to have this next guest. Uh, this next guest is a super veteran of the email, email industry. Uh, she's been doing email since about 2000. She said she told me she actually, yeah, I let her tell it, but she's been doing this a long time. She's become really almost like the queen of email, I would say. Uh, she's a super strategist, got tons of tips, tons of, tons of great knowledge, and she'll be a pleasure to work with and, uh, and hear from. So, uh, without any further ado, let me introduce, uh, Jen Capstraw, and here she is. Thanks, hey, for Jen. Having me. <laughs> hey, Jen, welcome to Inboxing. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation to be here. For sure, for sure. Uh, we're really excited to have you. Yeah, I, I, I apologize if um, uh, once actually I lost internet in the middle and um, Emily um, McGuire saved the day and just kept going. So if that happens, I just mentioned that because we're having a thunderstorm a little bit. It's been on and off. She's um, a pro. That's awesome. Yes, I'm happy <laughs> to talk to myself if you vanish yeah, here. Exactly. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump right in. All right, so tell us, how did you get, you know, how did you get started? How did you become the email queen? Like, and this, you know. I mean, I don't call dream. myself the email queen. <laughs> um. I think, you know, when everyone starts calling you the email queen, you'll know where it started. Yeah. <laughs> My first email campaign was in 2002. And everyone in the email community says, nobody picks email Email picks you. Email chooses you. And uh, I was thinking about that and I realized it's kind of like a cat that is stray and starts sniffing around your front porch, right? It's in your life. And, you know, maybe you feed it a little, put some water out, gets a little cold out. Maybe there's a little box in a blanket. One day you open up your front door, you let the kitty in. And then one day you realize, oh, I own a cat. And that's how you end up in email. It's just, it gets kind of delegated to someone. And if you have a little problem solving savvy and, uh, you know, it's, it's not always considered uh, a very exciting channel. It's not a sexy channel. And so it's just kind of cast off as a necessary evil and delegated to someone. And if you have a certain kind of problem solving capacity and a love for challenging, you know, complex ideas, then you stick with it and you discover the community and you just make it a part of your life. And so in 2002, I was working for a nonprofit trade association in Huntersville, North Carolina, and our members were in the art supply industry. And I was doing graphic design, communications, marketing. I had created their first ever website because I learned uh, Microsoft front page. So I was an expert. And so uh, the, so one day somebody said, well, we've got our trade show coming up. Why don't we invite people via email? 
let's do an email campaign and tell people to register for our event. And it was like, whoa, that's so cool. That's a great idea. So I created this email campaign in Microsoft front page. It was actually, uh, it was fluid with, which I have no idea if that actually worked in anyone's inbox, but it made sense to me. This email was so ugly. It would just burn your eyeballs. I found it a couple of years ago on an old hard drive. Yes. And I've been incorporating it into some of my presentations. It is so horrible. And the call to action tells you to download a PDF form, fill it out by hand and fax it back to us. <laughs> so bad. And it didn't have an unsubscribe link because it was 2002. It never occurred to us that there'd be anyone who wouldn't want this horrible email. Um, and so we had to get compliant when can spam happened a year later, but it just, it was a thought that didn't even come to our minds. And it's just so obvious to us now. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it was really, you know, you actually the inbox was a pretty quiet place for a while until like spammers started really getting excited. <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. I remember. Even then, yeah. you know, spam, spam was becoming a thing, you know, hotmail was the big equalizer in, in 1997. Prior to that, you could only get email through your ISP, which I know when we were chatting earlier, you said you had an email address, I think as early as 1994. I think so. I mean, you imagine you've got mail every time you got an email. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I couldn't afford internet. I was very poor. And so I got a hotmail account that I could check at work. And that's when spam kind of happened. That's when email marketing really started to hit and when the spammers came out because everybody had access to email at that point. Right, right. It's a really great point. So in what ways do you think companies are hurting their relationships with their customers? Oh, I see this so much. And I was just talking about this at Digital Summit last month. And it's uh, misdirection, cheap tricks, and a reliance on negative sentiment. And so some examples of that are using uh, RE or forward in the subject line to give the impression of a one-to-one -one conversation uh, or, or using kind of a strange from name to, to again, give that impression of a one-to-one -one conversation to trick somebody into opening their email. And I screenshotted so many examples from my own inbox that this cheap trick just never dies and it's still being professed as a best practice or something you can do to get a lift in your open rates. And then some of the more egregious examples of this would be someone in my network was um, let go from her job. She's looking for new employment. She signed up for some job search websites and she got something with the subject line, uh, your job interview. And she was like, I have a job interview. And she panicked and she opened <laughs> this email and it was like, if you got a job, congratulations. But if you didn't, you should update your preferences and alerts. And that is not going to make you feel good about your relationship <laughs> with that company. And the reason this advice keeps getting traction is because it can give you a temporary lift in some vanity yeah. metrics. You could get a little bump in your open rate, sure. But is that sustainable? No. Fool me once, right? That's all you get. <laughs> and you're also damaging the way that people feel about your brand. And so that undermines your long-term relationship with them. If somebody is a friend to you and they're pulling pranks on you that are not that clever and just kind of mean-spirited, your, your feelings toward them change. And the attitude toward brands can change when you are very reliant on tricks like this. 
And so, yeah, you might even get some sales out of these people, but are they going to continue to feel good about you? Are they going to uh, be a long-term customer? Will they be loyal? Will your customer lifetime value be maximized? Probably not. And even things like uh, an overwhelming sense of urgency, right? That's grossly overused. You need to be very <laughs> careful about sense of urgency because if every sale is last chance, right, we're on to you. We know it's not the last chance and it loses <laughs> its effectiveness. So these are some of the things that kind of drive me nuts when I see them in my inbox and, and it's a disrespect for our subscribers. We need to treat them um, as though we know them and put ourselves in their shoes and and like our friends, they they deserve our respect. So no cheap tricks, none of that silly nonsense and stop reading the blogs that are like, I got a 10% lift in my open rate with this one simple trick. I mean, if they're telling you stuff like that, they're spammers, plain and simple. Yeah. So what do you think you know, we're here talking about building human connections. So, you know, what, what should focus, what could companies focus on and really develop what you're talking about, like that really deep connection that will maximize, you know, overall value and keep them as long-term customers? We were just talking about this at MailCon last week. Uh, I moderated a panel called The Best Idea I Ever Had. And one of my panelists was Sue Cho from Calm. And Calm is a meditation app and they've got these sleep stories. And um, I'm a user of the Calm app. I enjoy it. It uh, puts me to sleep every night. And Sue said when she arrived at Calm, they had just forged a relationship with a very famous author. And this woman was going to be narrating one of their masterclass sessions. So they're all excited. We're going to capitalize on the star power of this author. And so, Sue, we need you to send out a newsletter and you need to like push heavy on this author and we're going to get so much engagement on this new product that we're very excited about. And she was like, I don't think anyone really cares about this famous author as much as you think they do. So let's do a test and, and let's see what users really care about because I'm putting myself in the user's shoes. I'm looking at it from that perspective. And I, I don't think that they're going to, it's going to matter much. It's going to it's not going to affect their engagement with our other products. Uh, and it's not going to really get that much traction on this new product. And her test results were correct. And she discovered that people were actually very interested in the daily calm, which is every day there's like a new 10 or 15 minute meditation session with a specific theme. And that's what people love. They want to listen to the daily calm every single day. They love the variety of it. And so she didn't run the test just to prove like I'm right and you're wrong. And I, I hear a lot of email marketers suggesting that that's a good reason to run a test. It's not really. So the point was not to like prove that Sue Cho is right. It was to prove that her instincts about what customers care about is different than what the company cares about. So, um, and she says, you, you're not always correct in these predictions and you really should test them, but the test results gave her enough ammunition to then create a new campaign to actually eliminate newsletters altogether and introduce a daily calm campaign. And it's so successful that people, if they don't get the email as expected, then they will complain to the company, where's my email? <laughs> What's on tap for Daily Calm this week? So um, putting yourself in the customer's shoes is so important. Delivering value, delivering on the expectations that they had when they signed up with you, just hammering over, over the head with 
offers and promotions and why you're great is not really going to resonate with anyone. Uh, And that's why we saw such a trend toward personalization over the last five plus years, and especially those year in review campaigns, which I've seen lots of different variations on that idea, because it's all about me, the subscriber. And I like seeing information that's about me and for me. So um, delivering value and, and focusing on building a relationship, you know, little fun things like hearted campaigns can really make someone feel good about your brand and build that positive sentiment that's going to drive loyalty in the long term. Something that I have observed over the past few years is a big trend toward brands talking about their, uh, their values and even controversial values like social issues and political issues. And we see this most often from brands that have leadership that is a little more liberal leaning or progressive in the United States. Conservative companies tend to be conservative and it's, it's considered, you know, impolite to talk about these touchy topics. And so they shy away from really promoting their beliefs. But um, it, more and more, you know, we're seeing companies talk about, you know, they they value the environment and here's how they're supporting that. They um, There was a campaign a few years ago from REI and it was very subtle. Like it was not very obvious that this was a highly politicized message REI obviously is a company that values the great outdoors. They sell, you know, gear for outdoor experiences. And there was Donald Trump was evaluating some parks with national monument status. And some of our national treasures were in at risk of losing protection and status. And so REI kind of subtly, they're like, we feel that our national monuments should be protected. Um, and he was Super political, but not obvious. But there's one brand that has just kind of thrown caution to the wind. And the owner of the company speaks his mind and he says very controversial things about, especially about the Trump administration. And the company is Penzi's Spices. And he got a lot of visibility the day after the 2016 presidential election in the US when he just said, I don't like Donald Trump. I don't like Trump supporters. You know, you all stink and I want nothing to do with you. And people are like, how dare you? Or they were like, yeah, I'm with you, Bill Penzi, and I'm going to buy all your spices. And so he does these super political campaigns and he'll build promotions out around them. And every time he does one of these promotions, she sees a huge spike in sales. And he released some information in 2018, I believe, where he said, you know what? Sometimes I see an 80x lift in my sales when I form a campaign around my political opinions. And so I'm okay with a bunch of people boycotting me because I'm really rallying the people who are with me. And I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing this because I think it's the right thing to do. But the money is just a nice side effect of that. Um, And so we're seeing more and more companies get in on these political and social issues. There was a lot of it over the summer during the Black Lives Matter protests. And companies actually started getting better at avoiding the virtue signaling of, you know, like, hey, we support this, but like, we're not really doing anything <laughs> meaningful. So they're smart about it now. And and there were so, so many terrific, authentic campaigns that said, here's how we're trying to solve the problem. And we are reflecting and seeing that we have been a part of this problem or that we have not been contributing to a solution. Here's what we're doing now. 
and here's what you can do. And so there were a lot of excellent campaigns over the summer. But again, there are a lot of companies that are going to stay away from this. This is not for everyone. It's and and it's it's risky. I've only seen one brand go hard on the the uh, conservative point of view politically. It's a pizza chain based in Dallas called Pizza Inn. And in the days leading up to inauguration, they released a press release and social media information saying that they felt that the election was fraudulent in the U.S. and that there shouldn't be an inauguration. And they were like tagging all these conservative pundits trying to shamelessly get PR and visibility for their failing brand, which was at risk at that time of being delisted from the NASDAQ because their stocks had fallen below a dollar. So this was like... You could see that the strategy <laughs> did not come from an authentic place. And they put out the press release. It was picked up by some news outlets the following morning. And hours later, the Capitol was attacked. So this not only fell flat because it did not come from an authentic place, but it fell flat big time because <laughs> then, you know, this, this, this crisis ensued and they've got stakeholders and and franchisees who are like, dude, like, how are we going to sell pizza now? What are you doing? So they had to step back and retract, but it took them a week. But a lot of companies are, are not going this route. And I've seen an interesting trend with trying to build a human emotional connection with people and it's dogs. If you go into your promotions tab and you just search dogs, pups, puppers, puppy, doggo, You'll be amazed at the number of campaigns that pop up. Everyone's putting dogs in their email to get your attention and to make you feel something. And that positive emotion would then be associated with their brand. I didn't. Yeah, I never thought we would come away with that. <laughs> Guys, use more dogs. <laughs> or maybe think of something different because they are getting a little overused at this point. Right. It's very interesting that political story you just told. And um, especially, you know, the guy who was like, but yeah, if you think about it, especially because the last results, you saw like things are so close, you know, you get half, you know, you get half the market share, like, you know, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> well, the, um, yeah, there's something not that close. And there were a lot of people who did not, who did vote for Donald Trump, who were very accepting of the election results. So it was a minority position and, and sometimes a minority position can rally support but it was the authenticity of it that was the biggest issue. And also, it, it just didn't seem to come from a place of good. You know, what is the motivation for this agenda? Yeah. Something interesting, I thought maybe you were going to tap on, but I just noticed, you know, there's more and more of these subscription, ad-based subscription services that just send a daily email. It's like almost like, like you know, Robin Hood snacks and, uh, you know, the morning brew. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's like a trend that's just going to keep going, you know, just niche down more and more. You, know, you get your day. It's like a little newspaper, you know, like that people are downloading and, and reading. Oh, yeah. You know, the the newspaper trend is huge and it's truly a whole separate community from email marketing. They are a community unto themselves. And yeah, so and Twitter just acquired review which is a platform for those types of newsletters and being able uh, okay. to monetize those newsletters. And uh, yeah, this is a very interesting thing that's going on. Um, uh, journalists are <clears throat> leaving their traditional jobs and trying to build their own audiences and monetize them themselves. 
Um, but like all things, only the few will be really successful in this and like become a shining star using this strategy. I think it's awesome, but it's not going to work for everyone in terms of like, are you going to be able to support yourself on this? Can you make an excellent living doing this? Um, some people, yes, most people know, but newsletters are super hot and curated content right? You don't even have to generate original content. You can just <laughs> refer people to other people's content and tell them what you think about it. So I, th- I think it's a fascinating trend. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, and no, it definitely is. And, and, and you're right. It, I mean, that's why I think we're seeing, you know, Robinhood Snacks obviously comes from Robinhood. It's like, yeah, they're already making plenty of money. <laughs> so they have a base of support before they even started and they had an audience. Anyway, and, and I'm be- assuming that's something different <laughs> than the Robinhood trading app. I think it's their newsletter. I think. I think it's I think it's related. I mean, I, okay. I don't know for sure, but um, I, I truth is I signed up for it because I was looking for things. I asked in the community in the in the email geeks uh, Slack chat, like what is everyone listening to or watching? What's what which we you know what should I be looking out for? So I was that's how I got that one. But I assume there I assume it's their thing. Yeah, and that's another very controversial subject these days as well. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing whatever we can to boost ratings here. (laughs) (laughs) Not relevant to email, but it is a fascinating thing that's going down with Robinhood right now. (laughs) All right, what do companies need to be doing to really nurture that? And we kind of just touched on that. But do you want to talk about that at all? You know, it just boils down to respect, empathy delivering value, giving them what they expected when they signed up. No no cheap tricks, authenticity, maybe a little entertainment, be human. There are certain brands that are very hesitant to talk to you like you are a real human person. But even if you're B2B and you've got a conservative brand voice, that doesn't mean that you can't treat people like people. You know, you should be thinking about how would you interface with someone if you were in a room with them, would you send an email that says, Dear Jennifer M. Capstraw, <laughs> in an effort to improve our customer value initiatives, we wish for you to complete this very brief survey. No, don't send me that email. Hey, Jen, we value you as a customer and we'd love to do better. Would you mind taking this brief survey? Right. Just keep everything. You're saying doesn't matter what brand you are, just keep it human, keep it conversational. Yeah, avoid and that's high level. Yeah, high level as if we're giving a speech. Um, so let's talk about how how can companies build their list. You know, what's like good practices in terms of like building a list. You know, just content pieces or, or you know just general strategies for building your list. The best way to have a big list is to retain the subscribers that you have. And there was this really interesting study, and it's a little bit old. It's a few years old, but it was from Forrester. Um, and if you've ever been to any of my sessions, uh, especially my workshops, I talk a lot about like stats and benchmark reports. Kind of take them with a grain of salt unless they're from a very reputable source. Forrester, I would consider an exceptionally reputable source. And they did this study on personalization back when everybody was talking about personalization. And they were trying to quantify what is the value of personalization? What's the ROI? And what they found was it didn't necessarily cause subscribers to spend more or to spend a lot more on your brand or to convert in whatever ways you're looking for conversions. What it did is it retained them. And so they weren't unsubscribing. They weren't 
leaving your list. And so your list grew a lot faster. It got much bigger. Your reach became further. And so by keeping them and having more people's eyeballs on your messages, that's the ultimate ROI of delivering email that people want. So um, focus on retention. I see so many brands that are so quick to delete people that they have categorized as disengaged. And they're like, oh, you, you haven't opened in 90 days. That's it. You're off my list. And that's very short-sighted. And you're making a decision for them that they didn't make for themselves. They signed up for your list for a reason. They're not engaging for a reason. So what is it that you, like you should be looking within and addressing that problem rather than just cutting them from your list. And uh, we can talk about, I, I think we're going to talk about re-engagement a little bit, a little bit later. Um, but meeting expectations are so important. The value proposition that you have at the moment of sign up, deliver on that. Um, and a great way to keep your list large and healthy is to give people a few options on your unsubscribe page. So most people who click on the unsubscribe link don't actually want to fully unsubscribe. They're just disappointed in what they're getting from you. And, you know, some, some, percentage of them, yes, maybe you're not relevant to them and their needs anymore. And that's great. And you should set them free. But there are people who, if you give them a little more control over the relationship that you have with them in their inbox, then they'll stick around. So if you maybe have some categories of campaigns, you know, do you want to opt out of the in or out of these categories, promotions, uh, articles, new product releases, but you have to keep it really simple. This is not a full-blown preference center. This is just an opt-down preference center. And you can set expectations in terms of frequency, like promotions, about three per week, new product announcements, one per month, something to that effect to, to let them know this is what's going to happen if you make this selection. And you'll discover that a lot of people will stay on your list with a very simplified opt-down preference center on the unsubscribe page. And then, you know, there are so many different ways to acquire subscribers. And that's not always something that uh, an email marketer is involved in. Often that's other departments, other channels, other teams. But just be certain that uh, you're onboarding and is is going to match with their expectations. For instance, if you are getting uh, subscribers through some kind of a co-branded contest with a partner, then they're in it for the contest, right? So they're probably not high quality to begin with. But then if you don't actually uh, let them know the reason they're getting your emails now, thank you for participating in our contest here's what you can expect from us going forward and then deliver on that promise. If you don't do that, they're going to be like, who is this brand? And like, why are they in my inbox? And unsubscribe or spam report, this can harm your deliverability. So um, think about that, the, the source of it, of your um, acquisitions and be relevant to that. Set expectations. I feel like onboarding campaigns are just 
underutilized. And it makes me sad when I see this even in the email industry. Um, I attended an industry conference last year and a number of technology companies in the email space were sponsors of that. Uh, my email address was shared with those sponsors, which I understand. I'm, you know, is it best practice? Not really, but okay. It happens a lot in B2B um, and I'm okay with that, but not a single one. No, one, one of them said, you know, thanks for joining us at this event and then carried on in putting me in their email communications. However, their um, unsubscribe page was in violation of canned spam and was asking me for data points that I legally should not be required to share to get off their list. So that was a big faux pas, but nobody else acknowledged where they got my email address, why they were sending me email campaigns, what was their value proposition? What was I going to get out of these campaigns? It was like, here's our report. Here's a blog post. Here's why our solution is awesome. And I'm like, I didn't ask for this. And this is actually an address I don't use to subscribe to anything. So this is, you know, if really sketchy, honestly. So <laughs> that. Uh, it really is really sketchy. And you nailed it, I think, when you talked about, you know, someone who just shows up in your inbox is sort of like someone who just walked into your house. It's like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Do I know you? Yes, we met once at a party. I was in the corner. You might not have noticed me. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yes, uh, it? All right. So, how should co- companies treat contacts that don't engage? Like, you got people coming to a funnel, and then you see they're just not opening anything. What do you do? Okay. So I hate that everyone is doing the cut and run. Somehow this idea that it is a best practice to just delete them, it's ludicrous to me. And uh, as I mentioned, email marketers are not always actively involved in subscriber acquisition. And as such, they don't necessarily respect the level of effort and the cost of subscriber acquisition, right? It might cost five bucks for that email address. It might cost 10 bucks. It might cost a hundred bucks. If you're B2B and you acquired them at an event, I've seen the cost per lead be as high as like 1500 bucks, you know, when all expenses are considered. And what happened? Like they took a pair of your logo socks and never engaged with anything again um, because you didn't send them anything of value. Like they saw value in your logo socks, but they don't see value in your details. So um, step back and think about cost of acquisition and have some respect for that. And don't just throw those people away. You should be uh, sending re-engagement campaigns. Um, before you ever cut anyone, you should not be making these executive decisions for them unless they have been not engaging for a very long period of time. Now, it's true that a lack of engagement can be harmful to deliverability. So that lack of engagement does need to be addressed, but it's not like the first step to just start deleting people. Also, there's a KPI that we cannot quantify, and it is subject line impressions. So I see a lot of emails in my inbox all the time that I don't open, but it's keeping those brands top of mind. And that has value to me. If I don't want those emails, I'm going to unsubscribe. I know how to do that. I should own that relationship. So re-engagement is so important. If people are not uh, moving through your funnel, that's an opportunity to re-engage. If people are just not opening, that's an opportunity to re-engage. And I, some of the best re-engagement strategies that I've seen incorporate humor because how do you get an open from someone who hasn't been opening? Like you really have to get their attention with the subject line. 
So I've seen great examples of humor in re-engagement. Uh, a strategy that I personally had a lot of success with, with a lead gen client, was a, a little first name personalization and action requested. Um, mm. I, I've seen more aggressive, like action required, which, okay, like what's going to happen if I don't <laughs> engage with this Pottery Barn email? Nothing. But, um, you know, action requested. <laughs> can help. First name personalization, I know is so rudimentary. And we like to say that first name personalization is not really personalization. It always gives you a little bit of a lift. So don't use it constantly. Use it sparingly. This is a good place to use it. And then ask people, are you still interested? If you give them the option of yes and no, then the the choice like making it a multiple choice question where your calls to action are actually answers to the question will achieve incredible engagement. So I have had up to a 6% click rate on a disengaged lead campaign. Now, the majority of those clicks were on the no button. No, I am no longer interested. And they have that opportunity to unssubscribe. And if I had more sophisticated resources, I could potentially um, ask them, questions on that landing page like, um, is this forever? Or should we circle back around in six months or a year? Maybe it's just a not right now. Um, but you know, just yes and no, stay on the list or unsubscribe. Having both options can be very powerful. So I definitely recommend that in re-engagement strategies. And, and also the power of multiple choice can be put to work in a lot of other campaigns. Uh, but you also, if you're not seeing engagement, you have to step back and look objectively at what the heck you're doing. Why aren't people engaging? Right? What are you doing wrong? Because if people aren't engaging, you're not delivering on their expectations. So the solution is not to just cut them. The problem is not them. The problem is you. So what could I do to better engage? What could I do? What am I doing wrong? You know, could you survey a handful of people? Could you, um, what are you doing to put yourself in their shoes? What kind of tests are you doing to see what like strategies engage more highly? So think about your email content and that's what needs to be modified. It's not just delete, delete, delete. And, and when you delete, then the cost of reacquiring those people, right? Then there's more money that you're spending. Um, I see a lot of marketers say like, I'm just deleting them to save money, right? They're just never going to engage. They're not going to buy anything. Cut and run. I'm going to save money. And there's this obsession with saving money among email marketers. It's like a discount mentality, coupon cutting. Mm -hmm. Your, your budget should not be shrinking every year. <laughs> people who are, are doing display ads for your company are asking for less budget every year. No, in fact, your budget should be growing every year. You should be spending more money every year. You should have a greater reach every year. You should be adding more complexity and sophistication and additional strategies and campaigns every single year. And all these things should cost more money. So... Email is already under budgeted in almost every organization. Don't try and cut your own opportunity to do the best work that you possibly can. And I also want to reference a really cool re-engagement strategy that I saw a couple of years ago from Blue Apron. Um, and I think there are some other brands that are taking this approach um, with like abandoned cart, but in the context of uh, re-engagement or a lapsed subscriber what Blue Apron did was, you know, the typical, okay, you, you were a customer and you haven't been a customer for a while. 
would you like to resume being a customer and like click here to do that? And it would take you to a landing page and you could reactivate your Blue Apron food subscription where they deliver, you know, little kits to your door and you don't have to go to the grocery store. And um, they, they had great success with it. So they decided to take it a step further. If they could minimize friction in the, in creating that conversion, could there be an uplift? And so they used interactivity in email. So the email clients that would support interactivity, they they had a different experience. If it didn't support interactivity, then it was the traditional experience. Uh, They built in some graceful degradation where you would still go to the landing page, confirm, and so on. Now, they have your credit card on file already because you're a former customer. So if you were in an email client that supported interactivity, they would say, do you want to resume with credit card ending in one, two, three, four? Check a box. Yes. You click resume deliveries and the transaction happens right there in the inbox. You never go to a landing page. So it's one or two or three fewer clicks and they saw an increase in conversions. So that is really cool. I think that's amazing. (laughs) And um, this was before AMP for Email came out. And so um, there's the possibility of AMP for Email to be used for strategies similar to that, as well as a gazillion other use cases. And I could talk for an hour about AMP for Email (laughs) today. I think think everyone in the email community is crazy excited about uh, AMP for Email. And I know I saw Mark Robbins' uh, presentation last week at Melcon, and I was like, oh my gosh. And Mark Robbins is such a pioneer in the interactivity in the inbox space that having his buy-in on AMP is going to really be beneficial to getting more brands to start experimenting with it or to ask their email service providers to support it. And I I haven't caught that session yet. I was at MailCon too, and I haven't watched everything on demand just yet, but I'm definitely going to watch Mark Robbins because I am such a fan. But a sidebar, something that's so fascinating about AMP for email is it's a whole separate MIME type. So we've got HTML, email, we've got the text version of the email. AMP is a third MIME type. And so the email clients that support it it the it's going to look the same in every email client and that's the problem the challenge of email is that html looks crazy and different in every single email client that's what makes it hard but amp looks consistently the same and uh google is committed to working with their competitors and getting more of them to support this and they've made a lot of headway so i'm excited that email standardization is potentially on the horizon and not only the the um the interactivity and the rich experience that we can get from amp but just like just making it look the same in every inbox could be within reach and i think that that's super cool yeah i think it's definitely come a long way and like i could say myself it's coming from the dev world where you know everything we did had to be bulletproof you know and and recently i saw like you know you could just even almost just use regular HTML and it almost works, you know, like on 99% of clients. I had a little discussion with this about, uh, with, um, uh, with Jay Orem from Rocket, uh, from Action Rocket. Uh, yeah, so just, yeah, it's, uh, you know, coding for email is getting easier. But what you just said about AMP, that you're basically, you're saying that AMP will be the same AMP on every device. Like if AMP is respected, it will, it, it just the is. And that's, no rendering work the same way everywhere. Yes, isn't that cool? <laughs> That is very cool. That's like a big change. (laughs) That's very, very cool. 
All right, let's jump into boom. Jen's top five email marketing tips for 2021. So I have this email strategy workshop and um, the overarching theme is basically that best practices are BS. And there's a lot of bad advice out there. And I keep running into marketers who are blindly following these rules that they read somewhere. And I've, I've worked with clients where they're making decisions that seem to be undermining their success. And when I say, well, why are you doing that? They just go, because it's best practice. And I've already given one example of best practice. It's like a, it's like a bad Twilight episode, you know, Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I, and I already gave the example, like people are like, oh, I need to just cut disengaged subscribers after 90 days. No, like that's terrible <laughs> advice. And there's a lot of terrible advice out there or best practices that might be good for some, but are not good for all. And so we need to be critical in processing these. We need to be thinking about, does this serve my business objective? And does this serve my audience? And if the answer is no, then maybe that is not a best practice. And there are so many of them. Um, but even some of the good best practices are made to be broken. And I know you you wanted to talk about some of my favorite brands and most of them, the reason I love them is because they break the rules, right? And the rules are there for a reason, but things like, you know, your friendly from should be consistent. It should be your company name uh, or, or you know, um, a leader in your company and you're consistently using that leader's name and there has to be a reason that you're using that leader's name. So some of these brands are doing crazy things in the inbox like, you know, using a different from name for every single campaign, using nonsensical subject lines or random things. It's bizarre. Right? Are there, a lot of, are there are a lot of friends doing that. I, I know of one. I don't know if it's the one you're going to talk about, but I can think of a couple. One, like, yeah. Does that have to do with any monkeys going to the moon? Um, I don't know I that one. one. We'll talk you know about that one. All right. So it could be your new favorite brand. We'll talk about it in a few minutes, I guess. So don't um, follow these rules because you think you have to um, and you think it's the right thing to do. And sometimes it's okay to break the rules even when it is a very good rule because um, everyone loves a maverick, right? Like I'm a rule breaker. I do not do good with authority. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to find my own way. I need to know why everything. You tell me that I need to do something. I'm like, you, you need to give me an explanation. Like I was a pain in the butt as a kid in school because I couldn't blindly follow rules without understanding their purpose. And so that has bled into my career as an email marketer. And when I see these brands that are just doing outrageous, interesting things, I think it's really inspiring. Now, not everybody can do that, right? It's not aligned with their brand. And it would be chaos in the inbox if all of our from names and subject lines and preheaders were just like outrageous and unpredictable. Um, so like, that's not the correct way, but there might be some other rules that you can break. So do not have this uh, this emotional attachment to best practices. Also, testing everything, I think, is a huge mistake that marketers make. Um, test everything is bad advice. You need to test smart. You need to test what matters. It needs to be statistically significant. You need to then have learnings that you can apply so that you don't can have to continue to keep testing all the time. Um, and that's 
another subject that I could talk about at length. But um, my, my number one testing suggestion is to use the Frazy A-B test calculator. Have you seen this? I have not. It's awesome. It's going to tell you, you you tell it the size of your list or your segment. You tell it your average oh. open rate. It tells you how many splits you should have or even if you shouldn't test it all. In some cases, it'll tell you maybe you should just do a 50-50 split and you might get some learnings from this, but they won't necessarily be statistically meaningful. So um, I created a memorable short link so that like, people could get to it easily because it's buried on their website. <laughs> but it's gen.tips slash test. And it's awesome. Like it's the best tool that you can use. And, you know, subject line tests being our most common test. So be sure your tests are statistically meaningful. Use the phrasey subject line A-B test split test calculator. I also see people too dependent on stats and benchmark reports. And as I mentioned, most of them are not that reliable. Uh, I think benchmark reports are awesome and um, can give you some great ideas and some information to compare yourself against, but you can't put too much stock in them because the nor the numbers are not normalized. You don't know um, how the different brands that are represented there, like what they're doing that's different from you is brand A, cutting everyone who's disengaged after 30 days or 90 days. Well, yeah, their open rates are going to be very, very high as a result because math, that doesn't mean their open volume as at, is at its maximum. So, um, and then somebody else who is keeping the disengaged on longer, they're nurturing them and re-engaging them and trying to keep their reach as wide as possible. Their open rates might be lower, but their open volumes might be higher. And so, all of these numbers are kind of skewed. And so, and I also run into a lot of marketers who are like, okay, I need a stat that is going to tell me how much of a lift I'm going to get if I do this very obscure random thing in my very specific vertical. And it's like, dude, that stat does not exist. Stop looking for <laughs> it. Right. And if it did exist, it's not something that is truly reliable. And an example of this is there was a lot of talk about video and email like seven years ago. If you put the word video in your subject line, it was going to increase your open rates and people want video content. And I was like, oh gosh, I've got to put video in my email. And all these blogs and reports are telling me this percentage open rate, this percentage click rate. I was like, okay, clients, tell me what videos you've got. What assets do you have? We got to get on this video band rat wagon because the stats say so. This is the hot trend. And every single campaign I put out following this advice, it tanked. My audience did not want video. And in fact, I would have a whole campaign where it'd be like non-video, then video, non-video, then video. And it would be non-video, high engagement, video, low engagement, non-video. And it would just do, do, do. And usually campaigns kind of drop off over time, but this, this was ridiculous. And so that I was just blindly following a trend and a stat without giving it enough thought. Is this appropriate for my audience? Also recommend a lot of times email marketers get excited about cool factor. Like, oh, I saw this thing, this example, I saw it in a webinar, it was rad. I want to do that. Again, not thinking too much about is this going to deliver ROI? What's the level of effort? What's the best way for me to spend my time? Is it to do this cool whiz bang thing? Or is it to maybe create that re-engagement campaign I still haven't created yet? Um, so 
look at what you're doing, measure it by return on investment and level of effort and prioritize these things. Don't just chase the cool thing, figure out the best way to invest your time. And my number one tip though, bonus tip is come to one of my email strategy workshops. They're fun. All right. All right. So let's go to the flip side of that. So what are your top pitfalls? And we kind of have to bomb this a bunch, but you can just go over it one more time. Yeah, again, just like blindly following those best practices and obsession with vanity metrics, right? Like, oh gosh, we got to increase our open rates. Open rates don't really matter that much. What matters more is your open volume. Uh, You need to have high enough engagement that your deliverability is not suffering. But, um, you know, we're obsessed with open rate. We're obsessed with click rate. These are important, but like, what are you really achieving? Are you getting conversions? Are you generating revenue and profit? Are you pushing people through your life cycle to whatever the next conversion step is? These are much more important KPIs and uh, marketers find it difficult to connect the dots between what they're doing and all these downstream metrics. So start having those conversations in your organization, bring down those silos and start bringing all this together, looking holistically and also looking holistically at the relationship between like email and the other channels. You shouldn't be operating in that silo. Data silos are problematic. So um, yeah, vanity metrics, bad. Don't get too obsessed <laughs> with them. Okay. What are your favorite brands and why? Wait, wait, can I p- punt that back to you and you tell me about the monkeys first? What were you oh, talking sure. about? We're talking about Baboon to the Moon. The Baboon to the Moon looks like some brand that was like, I don't know. I hope they have a better story, but I just feel like there's probably a big brand behind it. But they're basically, they make bags, like makeup bags and all kinds of bags. Nothing fancy, really. <laughs> and they're not so cheap, super cheap or anything like that. But they just, their whole strategy is just kind of crazy. Um, they had like an end of the world campaign in December. They use all caps and all their subject lines. They're just doing whatever the heck they want. They did this whole thing about, do you know what's, do you know what, they did a subject line recently and said, do you know what space smells like? (laughs) (laughs) I will open that. I will absolutely open that. And they were, exactly one opened that. So yeah, and it was like, they were selling a candle, uh, some kind of scented (laughs) candle. Um, that smells like space. Sorry. I've jotted it down. I'm adding it to my list. I Bad am going to, to the moon. Look them up. The moon. Yeah. Okay. It's all so in that yeah. same vein, I love Shinesty. I love Chubbies. Right? They are ridiculous. Shinesty sells sometimes obscene products, um, mostly lighthearted friend products. Chubbies sells shorts and they're just so unconventional they're breaking all the rules every email marketer loves these brands and you need them in your inbox and in your life to like bring you a little joy uh as you're like getting through your mundane day i also love humor in the inbox and i love drizzly for that like i think they're killing it with all of their cross-channel marketing and they've become and drizzly if you're not familiar with it they are a alcohol delivery company and Obviously, the pandemic was very good for them. I think they actually got acquired yesterday. I think I saw that headline. Um, But their sense of humor is just spot on and relevance. You know, I'll get uh, emails that are like, ooh, it looks like, you know, it's going to be a snowy cold day. We know how to warm you up. (laughs) Right. So it's it's relevant and playful. And then I mentioned Penzi Spices, who does these like crazy 
political screeds. They break every rule of uh, like excellent email design and layout and copywriting. Like they've got images that text embedded in images, no call to action button, walls of text, crazy political opinions, and they get unbelievable engagement and it works for them, right? This is email so bad that it's good. It is ugly. It does everything we're not supposed to do and it is achieving great success for them. So even, I just love the Mavericks. I love everyone who's just, you know, not doing what you you expect. Um, and and right. hu- love humor always. All right. What are your all-time favorite campaigns? And why, why are, you know, just go for with campaigns, specific, specific campaigns. Every email marketer has those. I know mine. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to go a little outside the box here with this question. I've given a presentation about uh, humanization in the email channel. And the first example that I give is not the email channel at all. And it's a photograph of a fun-sized pack of Skittles that I received from a restaurant after I ordered on Grubhub. And it had a little, like a mailing label kind of attached to it, just like a sticker stuck on with a little handwritten note that said, please review us on Grubhub. Thank you. And that's it. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So first of all, this is a triggered campaign based on my behavior. Right. I made an order in this app and it triggered the campaign for them to drop the Skittles into my bag with my food order. And it's the handwritten element of it. That's kind of like a touch of personalization. It it humanized it. But what was most important to me, what really struck me was that they delivered value. They gave me something in exchange for what they were asking for. They weren't asking me to do something for nothing. Like, here is a small offering. Here are some delicious Skittles. And by the way, it would be really cool if you gave us this review on Grubhub so that other people will buy our food on this app. And so by giving me value to being empathetic to me, too often we're asking people to do something without telling them what's in it for me. So... You know, it just struck me and I felt like that was a huge message to email marketers, cross-channel marketers, like every marketer could learn from this little packet of Skittles. That's a great story. And I think, yeah, you're right. They could have just like put a card in the button in your in your order. Like, please review this. But putting it on Skittles is like, oh, I got Skittles. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right? Taste the rainbow, man. (laughs) For sure. All right. Um... Okay, so let's move off. We're going, you know, a different direction now. So you you started an organization called Women of Email. What is that exactly? And and why did you start that? What's that all about? Uh, I'm one of four co-founders and I'm the president of the organization. We're a 501c3 nonprofit association for women whose careers touch email. Um, Most of our members are are, uh, in email marketing, either practitioners on the brand side or at an agency or working for a technology vendor in the email space. And uh, we're open to cis women, trans women, uh, genderqueer and non-binary people. Membership is free uh, so that it is accessible to everyone. So anyone who would benefit from our community and our member benefits, there's no barrier to entry. So the people who need us most 
have access to us. Uh, we are the biggest organization in email history. So we've got more than 5,000 members. And last time I checked in 55 countries. So we're on six continents, which is very cool. No email marketers in Antarctica yet. So if anyone here is listening from Antarctica, please join. <laughs> uh, world domination sounds pretty cool to me. And we're best known for our Facebook group community, which is, you know, a, a safe place where people can ask questions without being felt that they are stupid or making a mistake. You know, it's a supportive community. There are some other communities that I was a part of where people could be very hostile and judgmental. And so women tend to not engage as much in those environments and they don't feel like they're part of a community. So we provided that space where they could get to know each other, ask questions and just, you know, friendships form and we allow off-topic content as well. So it's a lot of fun. But more importantly, we were the first uh, organization to address the issues of gender parity among thought leaders in the industry. So the inspiration for the organization being created was that there was a severe imbalance of female speakers at email conferences. And the industry, we later learned through a couple of surveys, is about evenly split. It's about 50-50 in the U.S., men and women. And so why would conferences have a speaker lineup that's 25% men, or excuse me, 75% men, 25% women? It doesn't really make sense. What What's causing this? And so we sought to solve that problem and to help nurture more thought leaders among the women in the email industry. And we've been really successful at that. So we have a speakers bureau and we match speakers with conferences and webinars and interviews and podcasts and all sorts of things. And uh, we've placed, we've filled about 150 speaker slots since we were founded in 2016. We're going to do a much better job of like tracking that, quantifying that um, going forward. We've actually just expanded our board of directors, added some new leadership. Uh, we have a scholarship program where we will partner with conferences and we'll get some free passes to the conference and you can apply to get a free pass because a conference can be career changing. So if you just don't have the funds, like, you know, you are perhaps underpaid, you're a person from a marginalized group, right? For whatever the reasons that it is difficult for you to attend conferences and get those networking opportunities and those educational opportunities that could level up your career, uh, you can apply for a scholarship. And so um, it's need-based priority. We also give priority to people from marginalized groups. And if we still have some left over, man, we just hand them out, like as many people as we can get into these conferences as possible. The last conference we partnered with was MailCon, who was super supportive of us. They worked with our Speakers Bureau. They worked with us on our scholarship program. Something else we've done a great job of within our community is bringing transparency to compensation in the email industry. Because the wage gap is real. It has been quantified in email, and it is about the same as the national average. Women in the industry are making less than men. Sometimes it seems to be due to gender bias when it's people in uh, equal positions. 
However, the biggest disparity is that men are assuming the more senior roles and the higher paying roles, and women are not ascending at the same rates. Women are also not negotiating as effectively, and they don't understand what market competitive rates are for the type of specialized work that they do. So we have a policy. A lot of companies come to us. We're looking for email marketers, and we want to want you to tell your community about that. And we're like, okay, great. What's it pay? And will you accept remote applicants? And we won't post it unless they tell us the, comp- the the pay rate. And if the pay rate is low, I'm honest with them. I'm like, dude, nobody in my community is going to apply for this. You need to rethink it. Let me tell you about, you know, more competitive pay. Uh, so by hosting these pay amounts like this is this is what this job's paying in this job and people it's it's been normalized now so our members are also when a recruiter comes to them about a job they're probably not interested in they will ask but what's it pay right they were afraid to ask that question before now they're asking and then they too are sharing these posts within our community like hey i heard from a recruiter here's the job the pay is this amount. And so, and sometimes we have people, so the board of directors will not post jobs without the comp, but members can post jobs. You know, we've normalized them putting the comp in there. Not everyone does and that's okay. But when they don't, our members will now ask, well, what's the comp? What's it pay? I'm not going to waste my time on this if you don't tell me what it pays. So people are being very open about comp now. It is terrific. And that information, that access to information has helped many of our members negotiate better. Even if they're not necessarily applying for those jobs, they now know what is competitive. And I had multiple members tell me they have doubled their income with this information. It gave them negotiating power. And one member who said she tripled her pay with this information, (laughs) which is amazing. Um, Our next step is to reorganize. Right now we are a nonprofit private foundation uh, legally, and we're reorganizing as a nonprofit public charity so that we can get larger donations from uh, corporate Uh, entities in the email space and that's going to enable us to then build out a staff and you know have employees who are running day-to-day operations because we are 100 volunteer run right now and uh expand our programs and just do so much more for our community so we are really excited about that and thank you for giving me a chance to pitch that (laughs) uh, facebook group um and also you can find a member application at womenofemail.org again it is free all right thank you so much for that it's time for your final thoughts you have, the, you have the floor. Well, I mean, something that I'm passionate about um, through Women of Email is helping aspiring thought leaders find their voice and, and get out there and find opportunities. And so someone like yourself, who is an aspiring thought leader, an emerging thought leader, you created this program, you put yourself out there. It's risky, right? It's scary to say, I've got something to say. I don't know how anyone's going to feel about it, but I'm going for it. And so um, I I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be a part of helping you on your ascension uh, is becoming a thought leader within our space. And congratulations on launching this and taking those steps. And it's been great getting to know you and being a part of this. Absolutely. Same, same here. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I hope maybe... I don't know when, but maybe you'll come back another time if uh, we get around to it. Uh, so big round, of, big round of applause to nobody here. <laughs> 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 so thank you again, really. And I'll just sign this off. I'll be there in a second. 
Uh, so thank you so much to Jen Capshaw. Uh, yeah, for a long time, actually, her name was Capshaw, and I couldn't understand why I couldn't find her. But yeah, I've got it now. Jen Capshaw, you can follow her on LinkedIn and on Instagram and on Twitter. All of Jen Capshaw, pretty easy. So thank you so much. This has been our program for this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with, um, I believe our guest is going to be uh, Danny Tal from Engage. That should be a fascinating topic. We're going to talk about ESPs and vendors and SMTP and the technologies related to it and really just trying to make sense of, of that entire space. So that's it for today. Have a good one.